Jesus' name, amen. We're in Galatians. It's a great book because it talks about um, our salvation and, and that we should live by faith. And Paul's been struggling with, with certain church leaders that haven't stood firm in, in the grace of God and others who perhaps are false teachers that are trying to pull people away. And I'm not sure why it's taken me so long uh, to be conscious of a very important and very basic thought about these New Testament books we've been studying, but it has. As Pastor Lee was teaching about Paul's personal disappointment with these Galatian believers, that's when it really hit me kind of hard last week. These folks are real people, actual individuals just like us. They're living in the region of Galatia, and they're being conned and duped into losing the liberty that they have in Jesus. Being deceived by legalizers into adding burdens of rituals and legalities and human performance. Adding all that to the free gift of grace given to them by God Jehovah. So I thought that tonight our study should be called Grace Changes Everything. Pastor Lee showed us that Galatia, you can see on the map, is a region, a province of the Roman Empire where Paul and Barnabas ministered uh, on their first missionary journey. Pastor Lee mentioned several cities or towns that Paul ministered to. The first one that I see on the map is Antioch of Syria. It's to the right in that purple area. And then several cities in Galatia itself, another Antioch, and then Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. And we have them on the map, if the map's still up there for you. All of these cities are in Galatia. They're located in the larger area we know today as Turkey, modern-day Turkey. Now, this epiphany of mine, a simple realization that we're reading about, studying about real, actual men and women who were living in the first century, converts of Paul's ministry. It hit me most when Pastor Lee read this verse, verse 6 of chapter 1, Galatians chapter 1. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. These were people just like you and me, saved by grace, worshiping and fellowshipping together, kind of like we're trying to do tonight. But they were hoodwinked into putting rocks in their backpacks, burdened down and encumbered with Old Testament legalities. These Judaizers require that they have the the daily task of proving our accountability to God. Every day to demonstrate the authenticity of their faith, even sincerity, proving to them and to us if we bite into it, and others and even God that were the genuine article daily, moment by moment, required to prove your right to belong to the family of God, that you deserve God's love and mercy. And Paul cries out to these people, I marvel that you're turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Jesus Christ. Turning away from grace, 
God's a merited gift to a different gospel. What a bunch of turkeys. <laughs> That's how I would call it. In fact, if Paul was writing at a later time, long after this first missionary journey, when his ministry might have taken Paul and Barnabas uh, throughout the whole southern region of modern-day Turkey, instead of him writing the letter to the Galatians, the name of the book that we're studying tonight, he might have written to a much larger group of people throughout the whole nation of Turkey, and with good reason tonight, instead of the letter to the Galatians, we would be studying the letter to the turkeys. Well, that's kind of borderline humor. But I want you to humor me tonight. Let's make sure we learn God's lesson tonight so you and I don't become a flock of spiritual turkeys. Let's begin tonight's lesson with verse 10, where Paul says this, For do I now persuade men or God? Do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. That's easier said than done. This is or should be the goal of every Christian, every follower of Jesus. Pleasing men, no matter how appealing it is to our ego, it will always cause us perplexity and uncertainty because mankind is fickle and unpredictable. So let's settle it in our hearts before we have to face it in our lives. Who do we intend to please, man or God? Verse 11, Paul says, But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, Paul's gospel didn't come to him by his own imagination or by education or perspiration, but it came by revelation. So I asked myself, well, what would another gospel look like? What would man's gospel look like? I have four ideas. It would be a legal system with loopholes. It would be saturated with rewards and incentive systems. Number three, it would be one where God always grades on a curve. And finally, everything will work out for everyone. Well, everyone that we like. Paul is claiming here that Jesus, either himself personally or by the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit, that it was Jesus who revealed the gospel to him by revelation. You all remember one of the major tasks of the Holy Spirit. It's found in John chapter 14. These are the words of Jesus himself, verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring you to remembrance all things that I said to you. Paul will tell us later in verses 16 and 17 that before he connected with any of the apostles, specifically Peter, he was prompted to spend time under the direct tutelage of Jesus. Verse 13, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. Paul was at the forefront of the persecution. 
In Acts chapter 7, verses 54 through 60, we read about Stephen, the first martyr recorded in the New Testament. Paul was present there. He was standing in the crowd, perhaps stirring up the crowd. We read in verse 58 there, And they cast Stephen out of the city, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Well, Paul goes on to say in verse 14, I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Paul worked hard at climbing the ladder of Judaism. Paul's zealousness can be seen both in his desire to advance in the religious traditions of the Pharisees, but also in his persecution of the early church. In his desire to learn, Paul sought out Professor Gamaliel, recognized as an exceptional Pharisee, a doctor of Jewish law. This was Paul's past. But here in this letter to the Galatians, he's wanting to speak of his present situation. So he says in verse 15, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, to reveal his Son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. God revealed his Son in Paul. Notice that Jesus was revealed to Paul on the road to Damascus. But here, Jesus is revealed in Paul. Our faith isn't just truth to believe, but it's a living Lord to be experienced. It's an indwelling Jesus who is revealed in us. Verse 16, he goes on, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Paul claims he didn't go to Jerusalem immediately after his conversion. He wasn't looking to consult with other men, but rather he went to Arabia for a period of time. This tells me that as important as it is for you to be listening to me teach God's Word, it's even more important that you spend time alone with the Lord reading and studying his word. Sometimes this period in Arabia is described as a spiritual retreat into the desert to work out the implications of his encounter with Jesus. This is when Paul begins working through what it means to think of Jesus as his Messiah, what it means that he has the role to be the light to the Gentiles. He likely spent a great deal of time reading the Old Testament scriptures, developing the messages that he will use later in Antioch and then on his missionary journeys. But this period is not a monastic retreat. As he studies and communes with the Savior, Paul is probably preaching Jesus and being faithful to his call to the Gentiles right then, right there in Asia or in Arabia. Verse 18, Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. Paul didn't consult 
the other apostles until three years after his experience on the road to Damascus. Paul goes to Peter first and seems to be giving Peter his due as the de facto apostolic leader of the new fledgling church. We see in verse 19 that Paul then connects with James. Now he's the formal recognized leader of the Jerusalem council. We find this event recorded in the book of Acts chapter chapter 9. Let's read it together in verse 26. Then when Paul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, and they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas, oh, we love Barnabas, he took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and that he, Jesus, had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus, and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. James is the head of the church leaders in Jerusalem. The Jerusalem council is made up of apostles and elders, with James, the brother of Jesus, as the chairman or leader. Paul states that during his business in Jerusalem, that's recorded in this ninth chapter of Acts, that he reported directly to James. Verse 19, But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed, before God, I do not lie. So if Acts 9.27 is this same incident where we read a verse, uh, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, then I would assume that James must have been approached individually as a leader of these Jews before Paul spoke to any of the others. Then when opposition to Paul grows violent, according to Acts chapter 9 verse 30 as we read, when the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. With the help of the church, Paul is sent packing out of Jerusalem to the seacoast town of Caesarea. The story of Paul's early ministry progresses in the book of Acts as we read about it next in Acts chapter 11, just a couple of verses. Verse 25, Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Remember, they were called the way before that. And now we're keeping that name. We're believers in Jesus. Tarsus and Antioch are both in Syria, which brings us back to Galatians chapter 1, verse 21. Afterward, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Cilicia was an early Roman province located on what is today the southern Mediterranean coast of Turkey. Well, Paul let little grass grow under his feet after he reported to the church. He could be described as a hard worker who lived by this phrase, let's get moving, we're burning up daylight. 
His job is to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. So he heads out immediately to Gentile country. But, although the dangers and struggles to escape were great, Paul takes good memories with him. He reminisces about them, uh, his time in Jerusalem and Judea, here in uh, verse 22 of Galatians. And I was known by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they were hearing only, quote, he was formerly, uh, he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. These Judean believers probably house churches around Jerusalem and the surrounding area, reluctantly accepted Paul, this former enemy grandeur, and he, re- he was received into their fellowship. You see, Paul was proof of his own message. God's grace had transformed his life. He goes on to say in verse 24, And they glorified God in me. As the Holy Spirit confirmed Paul's calling and his authenticity, these fellow believers praised God for saving this wretched former persecutor of the faith. So now we move into Galatians chapter 2. Here Paul continues the defense of himself and his gospel of grace. He starts with verse 1 here. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. Dr. Walvard, one of my favorite scholars, says this, 14 years after Paul's visit to Jerusalem, we found in Acts chapter 9, he was back in the holy city to attend a council in the, on the problem of law and grace. That's in Acts chapter 15. Paul says in the first part of verse 2, And I went up by revelation. That is, by revelation, Christ personally directed him to go, just as he had personally given him the gospel years before. Paul continues in verse 2, And I communicated to them, that's the council, that that gospel which I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were, of, who were of reputation. Some Bible scholars believe that Paul met first with council leaders before the big debate that's recorded in Acts 15.5. He finishes, finishes his thought in the last part of verse 2, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Paul had been ministering among the Gentiles. He and Barnabas had seen many Gentiles saved and many local churches established. But now, here in Acts 15, the fate of the Gentile ministry was being discussed by the church leaders in Jerusalem. Would the council discount his ministry? Had he ministered, or has he said, had he run in vain? Acts 15 contains the account of this important conference. Paul summarizes what happened there in verses 3 through 5 here in Galatians. Verse 3, Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. Well, Titus held true to his freedom in Christ. I'm assuming here that 
pressure was put on him. Coercion was applied. But in spite of their strong, their strong arm tactics, Titus, the Greek, was not compelled to be circumcised. Verse 4, And this, speaking of Titus, occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. Paul is letting the Galatian readers know about the outsiders, professional agitators, whose only reason for attending the conference was to force legalities, bondage to the law of Moses for all believers, including the Gentiles. Paul calls them false brethren. They were bogus believers. These are the most dangerous enemies of the body of Christ. Someone put it this way. They tried to mix grace with grunt. They say you can be saved by grace, sure, but then you must maintain God's favor with this rule or that ritual. And the result is that soon you have a divided church. But I like how Paul models his response to these bullies to us in verse 5. To whom, he says, we did not yield submission even for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Paul says, we stood firm. It's grace that creates a mood of acceptance. It's grace that allows folks to grow at their own pace. It's grace that keeps people open to God's love rather than stifled by their own failures. Yes, God's grace changes everything. Verse 6, But from those who seemed to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. We get a sense of sarcasm of how Paul feels about some of these people. Perhaps even believers when he refers to them, those who seemed to be something, seemed to be something special. Being and seeming are two very different things. And Paul tells us as he finishes verse 6 that they were supposing that they were something special in the eyes of the Lord himself. (laughs) Not so, Paul says. God shows personal favoritism to no man, verse 6, for those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. Paul realizes he's on his own with the Lord with these guys. Verse 7, but on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcision was to Peter. So at first they were skeptical and uncertain. But later they came to stand with Paul as they did with Peter. Verse 8, For he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively to me toward the Gentile, in me toward the Gentiles. Paul is referring here to the work of the Holy Spirit and his and Peter's ministry. Here's the beauty of the body of Christ. We're all different members of the same body. 
different strokes for different folks. God used Peter's upbringing in the Jewish faith and traditions to reach the Jews for Christ. He used Paul's familiarity with the Gentile culture and customs to reach out to the Gentile world with the gospel of grace. Both men were used by God to reach an unsaved world. Paul continues in verse 9, And when James, Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars. Well, Paul's statement here doesn't have the same level of sarcasm as verse 6. He recognizes these three, James, Cephas, and John. These three are actual pillars of the church. These were the big dogs. The three that were with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. The three who went with Jesus in the garden to pray. These three apostles, Paul says, finishing verse 9, perceived the grace that had been given to me. They gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Well, I believe verse 9 uh, speaks of a second group of they, separate from the they of verse 6. Remember in verse 6, from those who seemed to be something, whatever they were. These men in verse 6 were self-important people. Perhaps they were Pharisee believers who were imposing legalistic demands on the gospel. The they of verse 9, though, are the leaders of the breth- and the brethren of the church who are welcoming the Gentile believers and Paul's ministry team into the fellowship of believers, giving them the right hand of fellowship. Verse 10, They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. James, the apostles and elders of the Jerusalem Council, are giving very few instructions to the Gentile churches. Paul points out one here in this verse, to remember the poor, one with which he eagerly agrees. Well, the short letter from the council that was sent with Paul back to the uh, Gentile believers is found in Acts 15, and I want us to read some of it. Let's start with verse 23. They wrote this letter by them. That's the apostles, the elders, and the brethren. They wrote it to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. Verse 24. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. Well, the letter begins by emphasizing the doctrinal fact that the ritual of circumcision is decreed unnecessary for salvation. It also rebukes the Judaizers for going beyond their authority. And then the letter ends, let's look at verse 28. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. In verses 28 and 9, 
the letter speaks to the practical issues rather than doctrinal issues. The practical issues of fellowship between Jewish and Gentile believers and the churches. And of preventing needless offense to Jews throughout the empire. The letter asks these Gentile Christians to abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. It's interesting to me that Paul deals with the topic of eating food offered to idols in his first letter to the church in Corinth. He tells them and us through that letter that eating meat offered to an idol is not immoral or a sin, because an idol is nothing at all. Let's look at that passage, just a couple of verses. 1 Corinthians 8, 8 and 9. He says, But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. The Jerusalem Council was most likely including these restrictions not as a matter of sin or immorality, but as issues of fellowship and harmony between Gentile and Jewish believers. I think it was also given as a consideration to witnessing to the unsaved Jews living in the Gentile world. The unsaved Jews in their community would be reluctant to listen to the gospel from neighbors who practiced these social issues so repugnant to them. And I think the issue of to stay away from immorality also connected to the idol worship uh, there in Corinth, where the idol worship um, included uh, sexual immorality right there in the false temples. Well, now next, Paul gets down to the nitty-gritty, the practical nuts and bolts of this whole issue of grace. He shows that he stood so firmly grounded in the gospel of grace that he opposed even Peter. He contradicted him publicly. When Peter's conduct at Antioch threatened to compromise Paul's gospel of our liberty in Christ, Paul stood up for the gospel. Peter was a man who should have been a leader in this great crisis of faith and doctrine, but he failed to take the lead. Paul begins in verse 11. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood or I opposed him to his face because he was to be blamed. Well, Paul is going toe-to-toe with this de facto leader of the early church. He is truly upset and disgusted with Peter's behavior. Verse 12. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. Now these men came from James, and when they came, Peter started making changes. Well, let's look at how Peter was before they came. At Antioch, Peter discovered a community of Jewish and Gentile Christians living together, and in particular, eating meals together. They were disregarding Old Testament Jewish dietary customs. These customs were probably against the practice still prevalent in Jerusalem, even after the council's declaration. Change comes really hard. Peter knew God's new standard. 
God had already shown Peter what he was to do in such situations. Peter had been given the message in this vision of the great sheet. Acts 10.15, remember where the voice of God said, Do not call anything impure that God made clean. Peter knew that God isn't making the distinctions anymore between those things that are clean or unclean. It only matters now whether we are in Christ or not. So Peter, no doubt, remembering this great lesson from the sheet and being impressed with the example of the Jewish-Gentile harmony, he joined with other Jews in eating with the Gentile brothers. Peter was declaring to both Jews and Gentiles in this Antioch church that the Jew, as well as the Gentile, was free from the Mosaic law. Then, things changed. The last part of verse 12, But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those of the circumcision. Were these men who... Those who came, Jewish Christians who were afraid of the false brethren? Or were they the false brethren, the legalizers themselves? Dr. Gabeline, another one of my favorite Bible uh, teachers, says this. After a time, some influential Jews arrived in Antioch from Jerusalem, giving out that they were representatives of James. They were the legalists, or at very least, very strict Jews. Peter's practice shocked them. These persons brought such pressure to bear on Peter that though he was unconvinced by their views, he nevertheless gradually detached himself from from the Gentile fellowship and began to eat with Jews only. Moreover, Dr. Gabeline says, his conduct drew others away with him. All I've got to say is, Peter, you turkey. Suddenly, Peter begins to act like there are two kinds of believers. Those who have a first-class ticket and those who have to sit back and coach. Verse 13, And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. If these men, including Peter and Barnabas, had stood fast in this issue, the legalizers would never have succeeded. You see, you can never go soft on legalism or hypocrisy. It spreads like wildfire. Even compassionate, accepting, good guy Barnabas was sick sucked into this betrayal. Barnabas, Paul's sidekick, Paul's partner as they preached side by side to the Gentiles. He had seen firsthand the grace of God working in the lives of these Gentile brothers and sisters. Paul recognized that the harmonious fellowship existing in the Antioch church has been divided by this behavior. So what does he do? He takes action. Verse 14. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, since, you see, since the schism was public, 
Paul confronted Peter publicly, charging him with inconsistency and stating once again that the works of the law have no place in God's plan of salvation through the death of Jesus. Peter, remember he's named the rock by Jesus himself. He's brought to task for his actions. No matter who you are, when you're wrong, you're wrong. So Paul says to Peter, as we finish up verse 14, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? Well, Peter is a Jew, and he's not keeping the full law. Paul asks, why and, and how can you expect the Gentiles to do it? Paul calls Peter out for his hypocrisy. And he continues in verse 15. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles. Well, he's being sarcastic again. Paul is reminding Peter and his Jewish friends that the Jew in that day looked upon any Gentile as a sinner. In fact, Gentile and sinner were synonymous terms. So he goes on in verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified or declared righteous by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, knowing this, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. And then he makes this great statement, for by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Paul is bringing Peter face to face with justification. Justified, just if I'd never sinned. We are pronounced pure and sinless in the eyes of God by faith. Paul will expound on it in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. By putting my faith in Jesus, I will be treated by God as though I have never sinned, even though I have. And I do. And I will sin in the future. That's justification. Paul goes on in verse 17. But if we, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we are, ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. But for if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. Paul says that it's possible for us to do ourselves harm. We can undermine grace. While the Lord is forgiving us, right in those moments of total forgiveness from God, I can still live under the feelings of guilt and condemnation. By trying to please God or trying to keep the law, I'm returning to the prison from where God has set me free. Verse 19, he says, For I through the law died to the law, that I might live to God. Paul is saying, only death sets us free 
from the law. It can either be my death or by faith, the death of Jesus on the cross. In Christ, by faith, we are dead men walking. Paul is saying, I have died to the law and I'm living by grace. In verse 20, Paul tells us how it works. This is a great verse to memorize. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's just that simple. Too simple, maybe, for some of us. If I die with Christ, by faith, Jesus will live in me and through me. Rather than you and me trying to live for Christ by keeping all these standards, these external laws, it is simply our job to trust Jesus to do His living in us. Faith is the old phrase, letting go and letting God. We have to trust the Lord for this miracle every day and every moment of each day. Verse 21, I do not set aside the grace of God. I think he could say, I won't do that for anything or anyone. I do not set aside the grace of God. Why? For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. When I require any necessary addition to what Jesus has done on the cross, then he died for nothing. If we believe we can live up to the law and enter heaven on our own merits, we're totally diminishing the cross of Christ. So let me close with just a couple of thoughts. We're to live by faith and by faith alone. That's Paul's challenge to each of us tonight. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you for grace. Lord, we all are tempted to become turkeys, spiritual turkeys, to be duped by our own humanness. So God, we commit ourselves to you tonight. We do not set aside your grace. We hold firm to it. That's our desire, Lord. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thanks for coming with us online. God bless.